Greetings, Mr. and Mrs. Middle America and all the ships at sea. This is Ian Punted in for George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM. It's a Friday night. I'll be back on again tomorrow night. Uh, And that's a heads up to the uh, invading space aliens, the hostile space aliens. Remember, eat the Canadians first. And it looked like some people from Illinois might have been on the menu. There's a story that's on coasttocoastam.com about the Prophetstown police chief off-duty Wednesday when he got a call from Todd's Tire and Auto where a crowd had gathered to watch a mysterious object in the sky. It's a good story. Uh, You'll find it on our website along with some details and connections with uh, our guests for the next couple of nights. Uh, We'll get into the junk science thing coming up tomorrow night for people who have been convicted of crimes that they did not commit. They're often the victim of junk science. More on that tomorrow night. And uh, tonight, I'm so excited. You know, the way the—I love it when I'm walking around for a couple of days— and people like uh, like Coast to Coast producer Tom Danheiser says, how did you get James Young of Sticks? How did you get JY on the show? And I'm like, because he's a nice guy. Because <laughs> he's a Chicago guy. Uh, and uh, and I can't wait to talk to him about, especially those early days of Sticks. But also, uh, we'll throw in a little bit about his solo work and some other things I think you're going to find very interesting. And then we'll do open lines on the way, too, because it's Friday night. It's fun. On Coast to Coast AM, this is Ian Punnett. James Young, known mostly by fans as J.Y., uh, was not a founding member of Styx, but it was there from the very early days. And uh, one of those guys whose guitar styles are distinct and whose virtuosity is underrated. Jay Wyatt, it's a pleasure to have you on Coast to Coast. My pleasure. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about you, okay? So uh, I don't know how you did it. It, this doesn't, this is apropos of nothing, but I had been on WGN for a while and I was not the whole band, but it was you and somebody else had come on and then I got fired from WGN about seven months later. I'm in the hallways at WGST in Atlanta where you were making an appearance with, I think, the whole band at that point uh-huh. uh, on, on 96 Rock. And you you said hi to me in the hallway. I'm like, how did you do that? You're like a name savant. I can't remember the people I met this morning. And you're like, hey, Ian. I was like, okay, that was that was you should really you should run for governor because uh, that is a that is a gift that you can remember anybody like that. So it's a pleasure to talk to you again after all these years. Yeah. Right. So You're a I of Chicago land, aren't you? Yeah, I am. And this is I was just ta- talking to somebody about how special I think that is, especially with regard to bands like Sticks, because I think all over the country. I mean, we all know disc jockeys and morning hosts and I mean, a million people in the business. But I got to know Sticks when you were back on Wooden Nickel. I remember Sticks when people were still stapling, you know, posters of you guys up on walls and telephone poles. That's how long I feel like I've known this band. Well, every every large enterprise starts in some small idea. 
and we just kept working at it and believed in ourselves. And we, we were fortunate to get signed to a record label that was pretty good to start with. And then we were fortunate enough to be able to get out of that contract. Yeah. Really, the thing started exploding. Um, we found good people to represent us and uh, we didn't get <laughs> not too much got shaved off the money that we were supposed to get because <laughs> you know, we weren't paying attention or whatever. And it's, right. I don't know, it, it, it's, it's such a spectacular journey to start out. I picked up guitar at age 14. Everyone in my family was starting on piano at age five. Right. And, uh, but I just, I Bo Dilly the Gunslinger is the first vinyl LP I bought. And now <laughs> um, I'm friends with his, his daughter. Isn't that great? Uh, I've, I've met Bo a couple times, but he's, uh, I've heard, <laughs> he's kind of a cranky old guy. And I think he passed away recently, but, Did he? um, he, but, but, um, you know, that's what got me going on guitar. And then, Jimi Hendrix is the most sure. profound influence for me. And yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it's... Five times live. Yeah. This is the thing, though. And it, I, so I was talking about this. There was a... Recently, there was a reunion of uh, Chicago disc jockeys from that era. Um, yeah. And they had a... You know, they get together and they talk about... Uh, the, the And they're going to do it again next Labor Day. Where they just talk about that particular like late sixties or mid sixties or mid seventies kind of period of uh, of Chicago radio, and that that was that was sort of you you I say looked into, but you were there at that energy point where before everything got nationalized and before, while there was still a local flavor, and you were amongst many of the local bands in Chicago. That people, I think, were invested in because you had or participated in an aspect of that Chicago sound. You say Chicago, a lot of people think of the band Chicago, right? But, I mean, we all know Ario Speedwagon, Aliota Haynes, Jeremiah, you, anybody who grew up in that era at that time, that's what— it Yeah, Ed, and that's you. And that's sort of like—that's why Sticks was just like, oh— that was it. Was just it was cool to have been listening to you on those first Sticks albums before they got rediscovered by the rest of the country and, and kind of exploded all over again. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite memory? So, like at the same time, you're picking up a guitar. Dennis DeYoung is picking up the accordion or something, wasn't he? Wasn't he originally an accordion? Well, he, um, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he started out on accordion, and uh, we were all we were all my family was all started on piano, and then we were encouraged to play a band instrument. And I had two older sisters. One played the oboe and the glockenspiel, and the other one played the clarinet. I love that. So, so I took the clarinets because I kind of like uh, Pete Fountain and some of that New Orleans jazz he was doing. And my sure. other brother, who was quite talented and in the band with me at that time, not not Sticks, but the band that I had before Sticks, um, he, he <laughs> played the trombone. So. <laughs> well, you know, so here you were. I mean, Illinois Tech, great university. I mean, it's a fine little school, and yeah. then, and but so you're like the sort of the of the of the founding members of the group. You're the kind of the last to join. The rest of the guys all grew up within blocks of each other, didn't they? The Panazzo twins and Dennis Young lived right across the street from each other, and they met John Serluski at Chicago's Teachers College, where they all went to get their teaching degrees. <laughs> became an art teacher in Fanger High School. Uh, Dennis taught music in a junior high setting. Uh, but we played. We kept when I got there. We, we they would play a lot of 
proms and this and that and the other thing because yeah. a booking agent was able to get that kind of work. And there was some Friday night dance uh, yep. dance club that was downtown called the can't even remember what it was, but because I never played one, I got there after that era. But they, they you know, they they had good money going, and uh, it was a, it was a, a fellow that was married to Dennis's female cousin that kind of booked the band at that point in time. It was quote unquote the manager. Yeah. And uh, but but ultimately it was pretty clear that he, you know, he really wasn't going to be able to get us any further. And uh, um, after the first couple of albums came out, and then. Uh, so we said goodbye to him and uh, and got a, a manager, a Br- British guy who had worked with uh, a lot of the British bands, tour manager Derek Sutton, and he came to California to to manage, to, to actually be a, a band manager. And he'd worked with Robin Trower and a few other guys. Uh, and so right. Derek and uh, and we were able to get a record contract with A&M Records, Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. Which, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, a real record label where sure. there's an artist – Herb Alpert's is half owner of the company, right? And could play, so, obviously. Oh yeah, and could play, and but 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 had a sense of music uh, that most record company executives maybe don't have because they're not that musical themselves, right? Uh, so we, we were we were blessed there because it's really like an artist's paradise. There is everyone to go hang out. It used to be the Charlie Chaplin film lot where their <laughs> headquarters were. It was no steel and glass. Giant tower. It was right. a two-story thing where they made Charlie Chaplin made silent films. So it was just kind of a cool showbiz movie business, LA centric vibe that that place had. And just going there, you, you bump into you know Lonnie Hall from her, you know Tijuana Brass and whatever. Just right. bump into A and M people, and uh, Peter Frampton came out of that that school as well. Sure, and uh, so Frampton come alive was a Huge album, and we, yeah. our Grand Illusion kind of followed after that and sold just about as many as he did. I yeah. saw I saw Frampton, uh, I believe it, I can't remember whether it was the World Series of Rock Tour or the Monsters of Rock Tour, one of those, and uh, that was at the old Comiskey, I think it was, or, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. or, or Maywood Park or something, I can't remember, but, uh, yeah. but you played my high school. I don't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of bands would deny it. They'd be like, I don't believe we ever did. college with my brother. So Yeah. So he, here's the deal. You, I, we're talking with Jay Young of, of, uh, of James Young of, of Sticks, JY, and your, your sound, what people associate to, I think your participation of the band was always that rock edge on the guitar, but you do great vocals and you are responsible for many of the stick songs, especially the, on the early albums, which later on, I mean, I think they're classics. I think there isn't, I'm going to play a bumper at the bottom of the hour, JY, of the uh, the one stick song I I have to start my morning with uh, every couple of weeks anyway because it goes through my head constantly and it wasn't just your ripping guitar it was your it was the vocal and it was it's just, and you those early years you recorded in Chicago mostly didn't you well we were recorded um, first couple of records were in a downtown Chicago studio that that did jingles but was but had really great technology there. And then Gary Loizzo, um, who had his own home studio, he was a lead singer in the American Breed and retired from that band and, and started having a recording 
you know, studio in his home, and right. we, went to, we go to Gary's to record. And uh, Dennis really liked the way Gary recorded vocals. So it was great to have somebody that was, you know, a great singer in his own right. Sure. Gary, and who'd come along. And uh, so we, we bounced yeah. around a little bit. Yeah, but but that's actually a really interesting point because American Breed was a Chicago band, right? They did Bend Me, Shape Me, and then, right? And then some of the guys went out to L.A. and they formed Rufus, didn't they? Uh, Yeah, I think Rufus, yeah, Rufus, I think there's some some of the people did form Rufus, yeah. And so, but again, this is where, and I'm just going to go back to this uh, retro radio thing they did recently about which is just it was very jock focused but there was this connection and you guys are getting played on am and fm in chicago on different stations like wls um and you but you weren't getting necessarily you weren't getting national play yet no 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 i mean we really didn't get that lady was on six two which was our second record which was recorded in 73 first one was recorded in 72 and um, we sort of, you know, it didn't really get pushed that far. It got onto the charts, but it didn't really get high up. And somehow, some way, it, it seemed like some of our the, the showbiz attorneys said, you know, they really didn't work that record. They should have, um, and uh, they didn't. They didn't push it hard enough. They didn't get behind it. And so they, we had kind of a re-release of it a year later, and then it actually it, it got to number one. In every city, it just didn't get to number one at the same time. So the national charts were we were in the top five a number of times with the lady as a single, but it never got to number one on the chart. But top ten, we'll take top ten. Yeah, well, and that's the thing: top ten in a city like Chicago. Other bands were top ten in Miami or top ten, and there was still well, we a kind of regionalism. What's that? But we, but with Lady, it was top ten nationally. Right. I'm so you got there. But what I'm saying is, yeah. at the beginning, there used to be much more. And this is, I'm not trying to sound like the old guy on the lawn, but it, I, as I've grown to know how the music business works, there are there were so many of these smaller labels like Wooden Nickel that had really good regional success, but it took a larger label to come in and either purchase the tracks. You know, purchase the uh, the masters, whatever it was that they were going to buy, and and then they and then they propelled them forward. But that was the thing about. I mean, I still have my wooden nickel sticks albums. Okay, I'm never going to let them go. All right, uh, yeah. Uh, but so you took a kind of an unusual path today to number one. Uh, as a, and I say number one, meaning the band was one of the obviously one of the most popular bands of the 1970s. What's your fondest memory of those early years when you guys were, you were hoofing it? You were, you know, you were a baby band and you were trying to break it. Well, I mean, we we you know we had uh, we rode in a motorhome and the and our three crew guys were in a in a, in a, big, a big old box truck that uh, you know and, and carried the gear and then. All the PA systems and everything we dealt with, the production for the shows was far different than it is today. It was, it was, it was evolving, uh, but we, we'd anywhere they were willing to pay us, we, we kind of went there. Right. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, somebody like Little Rock, Arkansas, a lady actually became number one in Little Rock, Arkansas, the first first go around. 
and 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 KAAY, which is a fifty thousand watt thing like WLS, right, is in Chicago. I could drive around in my car and hear KAAY every night. There was a guy named Clyde Clifford who had kind of a psychedelic show going on down there. And uh, and so we became popular in Little Rock. We went and played Little Rock. It was the first real city we played <laughs> outside of uh, Illinois. And uh, we we get into Wisconsin quite, you know, quite a bit, and, of course, in Indiana and, and Michigan. But um, it took a while to s- spread the whole thing. We just had to keep at it, and we did. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, your roles within the band of sticks – um, I mean, you were all excellent musicians, but you, you, you could hear the growth as as songwriters, and I think it's been said fairly, maybe, um, that you were the George Harrison of sticks, right? That's, that if you, Tommy Shaw, and, fair, right? That's a fair you, example, I would say. Yeah, you you take that. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool, uh, and and sticks had you know we we talk about the you know progressive rock has kind of come back as a term, but that prog rock of the early seventies that was its own thing. Well, I mean, there's a lot of British bands that really got into the prog before we did, and we were just trying to to you know embrace that in a way that we, we could still do our music. And I mean, ultimately, the pinnacle of the seventies for us was. The Grand Illusion album, right? Which, Great album uh, was released on seven seven seventy seven, right. seven million copies, and it was our seventh album. Right, it was a great so, album. So, yeah, I love it. Lucky, I'm going to be playing something from that for a bumper, but that's still not the stick song that I start my morning with. You'll hear me say if you were here in my house because I'm getting. Re- I I teach at Kansas State. And I will turn to Alexa. I'll say, Alexa, play, and uh, you, you pop up all the time. Uh, I'll play you the, that one I, in, in just a minute as a bumper. Okay. But, yeah, could you guess? I mean, I don't know. Could you guess? What you would play? Yeah, yeah like early 70s morning. for people people that knew you well at the very early years. Um, well, best thing was our first single to, to chart at all. Um, but lady, a lady was you know, lady was the right. single. Uh, the third record, virtually nothing, emerged nationally, and the fourth fourth record was Man of Miracles, which uh, yeah, that, that was kind of a dip, wasn't it? That was kind of that wasn't your, that was an off speed album for you all. Well, it was it was uh, uh, I don't know. It was a, we did that. Was, was rather low tech comparatively to what followed, right? And uh, so, yeah. But anyway, right, so, then, then Equinox, the first record we did for A and M, that really made that that was really the the next. That's deal. a great album. Great album. All right, so I'm I'm just setting that up. I just as a, I'm throwing that out there, uh, and you know it's funny because if I had to picture you, honestly, I mean you're a handsome man, Jy. <laughs> you are. <clears throat> But if I had to picture you, it's with that mall poodle do, and the and the uh, and I'm you know honestly that sort of spaceman shirt you had with the fake with the shoulder pads on it, the kind of the Rick James thing you had going on. That's how I picture you. Well, we got into those jumpsuits. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you still have the the that those 
I wouldn't call them costumes. Would you still have that regalia from the from the early years or even the mid years? Uh, they're they're probably hidden in my act somewhere. Okay, Smithsonian dude. I'm saying so, <laughs> there's a space for you at, at Smithsonian for that for the that white kind of uh, satin uh, thing and the hair it just always kills me. But all right, so I'm gonna I'll play it my favorite, and then uh, we'll open up the phones a little bit uh, later on because I know some people want to talk to uh, James Young J Y of Sticks, and I'll, we'll be playing Sticks bumpers throughout the night, even when we go to open lines coming up later on on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. JY of Sticks on a fun Friday night. We'll do open lines coming up later on. I do not know what this lyric means um, that you sing in You Need Love. Lend me your dreams and we'll add what we need to be free terminally. But I love how you sing it, right? Yeah. I, yeah. To be free terminally. Terminally? No, that's the wrong okay. lyric. Okay, good. Because I don't know what terminal freedom meant. <laughs> that was like, but that was what my friends used to sing. Like that was the lyric, and I thought, okay, well, sure. I mean, I mean definitely. Oh, see, changes everything, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, that's my that's, that bumper is that's my favorite Stixon to this day. Great vocal. Um, it's yeah. So how and how did it end? Because like in the early days, it was really like a almost a coin toss between you and Dennis DeYoung, who kind of becomes sort of the de facto frontman for for Sticks, maybe on the later albums. But in those early years, it was like you or JY. We weren't, you know, it could go either way. How did that work? Well, I mean, we were, you know, we never made records before 1972, and. Um, I mean, I'd spent an awful lot of time listening to records, and and you know, I was very. It's a. I wanted to be a rock star, so I mean, I worked at it from every different angle I could, you know, sort of get close to. And then once we got into the recording studio, I mean, having an engineering degree, I understood the technology, or right, or, or I could understand an explanation of new technology better than most other people, and then help guide the team in the right direction on all that stuff. But. Uh, Oh, you know, it, uh, it it baby steps is, is all I can say about you know the wooden nickel era and 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 what what was sure. next was we, well, it was Equinox, but it being with A and M Records for that Equinox record that that made so much of a difference. I mean, they right they had a uh, their song Sweet Madame Blue that that took off in Canada off off that one, and it it not in Western Canada didn't think much of it, but. <laughs> the province of Quebec, uh, their their color is blue, and they thought the song was about their province. Oh, Quebec. cool! No so, wonder the other uh, part didn't like it. <laughs> They've always had that little <laughs> rivalry going. Uh, so uh, one of our one of our favorite songs is still play. So okay, but there are. I'm here. I'm telling you, you know this better than anybody. There are band dynamics, right? Where a band comes out with one great album, and then their sophomore album kind of sucks, and then the, you never hear from them again. And there are there are egos that develop with a little bit of success, or um, pe- people that you know they just they're going to go take a, a bank job. You know they're going to they're like tired of the road or whatever. You all held sticks together. At way past the point 
where other bands would have fallen apart, especially when if you were not if there was not one lead frontman, but there was a lot of talent in the band. So how how did you do that? Was that just talking it out? Did you fight it out on the lawn? I mean, how did that work? Well, when I when I joined uh, the Panazos and Dennis and John Sulewski had been together. They all went to the Chicago Teachers College together. Right. Yeah. And they, there was another guy who was a guitar player in a band, and he he up and left because he just he just didn't see himself in a band. Right. And and I was glad for it because my band had broken up. Uh, we'd we'd gotten a standing ovation that there was a rock festival at Irving Aza put on Kickapoo Creek. And uh, the band, I, we called it Monterey Hand. Uh, we played some original songs and played some covers, but uh, we got a standing ovation at that. But then two of the guys went off into Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, <laughs> so that's what I was my, my point. I was, I was looking around for for just another band. Uh, I was somewhere, a band that was established that I could be, become part of, and I auditioned, and they said, yeah, and I said, I'll, I'll do whatever you guys want to do. Uh, my trademark was Hendrix's Foxy Lady. Right. They had the technology to do that, that first, that opening thing where the, the song sure. creeps in. And like, right. Um, thanks to a fellow named Dave Yoshinari, who I went to college with at IIT, and uh, who I don't think is with us anymore. But uh, the. Uh, but you know what I mean by that? I mean, like, the band dynamics. It, it's like everybody's great sometimes on the way up, and then the fissures start to develop, and then. It doesn't. The band success doesn't draw everybody together. It starts to push them apart. Well, I mean, whoever writes the song, uh, that's something. If, if it's solely credited to Dennis, he's going right. to get paid more money. Uh, we right. sort of form our own publishing company, so the band members would share on the publisher's side, which is split half with the with the writer or writers. Right. And, uh, so we we did sort of. There, but that that there was definitely uh, there was confrontation over over that whole thing. Was there? everybody was out out there? Everybody's out busting their butt on the road, away from home, this and that, and um, uh, and then all of a sudden the money started pouring in the dentist's pocket, and so we all agreed that we would share uh, equally on the publisher's side. That's and good. That, that kind of helped it. And when you start sell, selling T-shirts and concert tickets. I mean, right. there's there's no division there. That's 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 the collective, and you divide up the profits of what's left over. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's funny because that again, to use the the parallel, George Harrison said that was the it was the publishing rights that kept him off some of those early albums because right. Lennon and McCartney didn't want to give up the space. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they like the money coming in. Uh, but but still, then they because you didn't write that song, right? That's it, that. It's, but they let that you sang vocal on that, and that was cool. And then you, there's other stuff that you and Tommy Shaw had done. I by the way, I was there. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't around it, but I was there the night that Tommy Shaw met uh, Gene um, in Nashville. Uh, she wife. was from. She's yeah, his, his wife. She was his uh, wife from now, Clarksville. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and so she was there, and a f- friend of mine is the one who introduced them, and okay. it was like, yeah, 
And I was so I was on the air at 103 KDF in Nashville at the time, and I heard later on from that mutual friend they're like, "Hey, wow, he, you know, she and Gene, you know, he and Gene really uh, hit it off." And I'm like, "Really? That's cool." And then next thing you know, like five years later, ten years later, they're still together. That, that's pretty cool. That's they're kind still of rare. Happily together. Yeah. Um, so, uh, your, so sticks starts to grow, obviously. I mean, and you, you go from, from being a a successful regional or a, a, a growing, uh, national act, a dependable act to a stadium band. And that had to have been, I mean, that, that, that's like, that's beyond every musician's dream, isn't it? Well, I mean, we weren't headlining stadiums, but. There was a lot of stadium shows where they'd throw like 10, 10 rock bands on there, Blue Oyster Cult, uh, Kiss, Sticks, Black Oak Arkansas, the, the, right. you know, those, those names. And so we, we'd get, you know, we wouldn't necessarily ever get the headline slot, but we'd, we'd, get, a, we'd get a crack at the audience. And uh, I don't know, we, we were very strong live with the vocals. Everybody could hit their, hit their notes and... Uh, and a lot of traveling and, and the, the separation from your families, you know, got in the way of some people's marriages to a point. Uh, right. Not mine, but uh, it's, uh, you know, so there, there's there's all those sort of internal things where you, you your family, you can't, you can't desert your family completely, but you kind of had to spend a whole lot more time away from right. home than, than anybody had ever been used to having. But then the money started really pouring in, though. So that was, yeah. if we were to get paid, we got to be out there doing something with it to get paid for. And uh, What does it mean to you to be a Chicago band? Well, I mean, Chicago, I view as the, the home of the blues. And um, very, I was very much into the Chicago blues um, yep. prior to sticks. And I'd, I'd, I'd gone and seen probably more rock concerts than the rest of them combined. Right. Um, <laughs> Cause when I was at IIT, uh, there, there's a whole, a whole lot of bands would come through and you'd, you'd, I'd hear about it. And, and, um, so I first heard Jimi Hendrix record was right. There, and there was, there was a fellow named Paul Petratus who grew up in Roseland, who was, was in one of, one of these, Local bands, but he was he was all, always very bright, clever man. Um, but he's he's, he's kind of stuck playing the blues still. Uh, right. He didn't want to go pop, and and I think the rest of us wanted the, the career to, you know, if this can be lucrative, let's let's have it. Let's, yeah. Let's let's see let's, it. Let's, let's see it. it. Well, for our families, for our wives, and those who then had kids, you know, you you have to. You know, build a solid economic foundation for your future. So, yeah, and you strike when the iron's hot in that sense, because you never know when it's over, and that it could be such big. And it, it, but you ended up riding this wave. Uh, you know, you Ario Speedwagon, um, to a lesser degree, Head East. You know, these you all you kind of you made a, a national name for yourself. That sort of branded that sound um and it's usually tight vocals or in the case of you know you need love too that is that's a tough song to play that's a lot of i hear that and i hear you know a lot of um a lot of 
hours spent getting those notes exactly right along with the drums or it's or it falls apart well it's um you have to you have to keep working at it until you it's right, right. but with with multi track recording you know you can take you can take a second crack at it and if you beat the first one then you can wipe the first track off and uh and keep improving it that way or you can punch punch in little parts of the thing it doesn't have to be done as a complete performance that's the beauty sure. of multi track recording that if the engineer is really good he can just punch in for a little thing and 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 get rid of a mistake so you don't hear it right and, uh, so but I think we both know bands that were great in studio and played horribly live, and, and you guys, you were you were a great live band, and that's because you know that I think it's because you you had that sort of I don't know this sounds patronizing I don't mean to but you know you had that kind of workman kind of uh, sound of people who were really practicing, and their your trajectory as a band was not just together but individually you all got better as the albums came out the songwriting got better everything got better and that that's that that was the neat thing that's why you that's why i think why grand illusion your seventh album is considered one of your best and one of the best albums from the 70s is because you were you that that you built up to that it wasn't just like you had one great debut album and the rest of them are like yeah there was a a good track on album three, but you guys were really you were you were you were hoofing it. No, the Grand Illusion was was you know where we really came into stride, and then uh, pieces of eight after that with a Renegade on there. I mean, Renegade yeah. on so many uses, yeah, you know, football games and sporting yeah. events and whatever uh, these days. And then 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 people hear it and they go crazy. Yeah, it's on my bumper list for tonight. And it partly is because it's it it has so it's lasted so well it really wears well as a rock record. Um, so your uh, so you all grow, you get to be bigger. Sticks becomes really kind of I mean it's certainly among uh, teenagers and and uh, and rec- the record buying public. You know, Sticks is a household name. People forward to your albums they camp out the night before i mean it's all the the cool stuff that usually comes along with that kind of success um and your um i mean dennis you have different sound you can tell who was writing the song almost right. you know because it there was a certain but it seemed like within reason you all were good in supporting each other in those Dennis D. Young ballads, or when Tommy Shaw was doing one of his uh, uh, one of those songs where he had all these different time signatures, how did that work? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't recall us doing stuff with a whole lot of different time signatures. And if anyone did that, I was probably the guilty one on that. <laughs> I was, I, I was a, okay. Well, I was, I was ench- enchanted by. A group called the Mahavishnu Orchestra, right? Of which a Chicagoan named Jerry Goodman was the played guitar and violin in that right. in that context. And uh, and Jerry Jerry just he's just a great guy. I love that guy. And uh, so you know, I then when I heard that, I went and did a solo record with Jan Hammer, who was the keyboardist right. in that, who, who sure. did the Miami Vice theme and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, I was think, I was thinking of fooling yourself. Um, 
as the because it has all those kind of neat little twists and turns. All right, well, hang on. More from uh, JY from Sticks. I think we're going to open up the phones early because there's going to be so many people are going to want to talk to you. I, I, I know my Twitter's blowing up or Twixter or whatever we're calling it these days. Um, so we'll give you the numbers that you need to join the conversation with uh, JY of Sticks. And then we'll do open lines coming up later on tonight on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett.